Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie G.G., and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I help organizations discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Writing engaging content is one of my superpowers. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a review and subscribe to hear our next episode. As a podcaster for justice, I stand with my sisters from the Women of Color podcasters community. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many others at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we are committed to standing against racism in all its forms. This week, I interviewed Stephanie Corin, who has been my friend for over 20 years. She is, hands down, one of the strongest and most resilient people I know. Stephanie opened herself up to this conversation completely, even though she has endured more heartbreak and loss than most people. She talks about her struggles with physical and sexual abuse trauma, mental health, drugs and alcohol, coming out as a lesbian, cancer and other health issues, and surviving and thriving after a devastating divorce. This podcast episode has a trigger warning for sexual abuse and trauma. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Marie. I miss hugging you. I miss it too. I miss having good times with your family and being out on your back porch. Can you share with our listeners about your childhood? I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and there was many wonderful things about my childhood. I had a close relationship with my grandparents and got to go up to Washington to Gig Harbor, which you know quite a bit, and uh, had a lovely time in a lot of ways. But there was also, uh, I was in the, sexually abused in the church starting at about four, and my parents uh, were alcoholics, and my grandparents were alcoholics, and my parents were pretty abusive physically. So there was also this other life that I had. In what ways were they abusive? They spank you or did they do worse things to you? Or Well, spanking, I always felt like when I was a kid, you know, I'd be warned. I'd know what it was about. What the rage stuff with the hitting and the rage, that was, that was very frightening to me. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, there was a couple of times where I thought I was going to die. Oh, my gosh. You were just a little child when this happened? Yes. And the, the realization, the, the feeling that I was going to die was a bit older. I don't uh-huh. think when I was really little, I had that comprehension. But when I was younger, I did feel immense fear. Uh-huh. And how often did this happen to you? You know, I don't remember specifically because time is such a weird thing when you're a kid. But I don't think it was unusual, mm-hmm. uh, is my, my feeling about it. I mean, there was a lot of times when it happened. I don't remember, the, like I said, the, the time space. I remember when I was really little, I didn't clean my room right. and Wow. So it wasn't always connected to, to alcohol. It wasn't always connected to them being drunk. I mean, I think it was co- connected to the rage brought on by alcoholism. You know, there's uh, a rage alcoholism that can come along with alcoholism. I remember it mostly, you know, during the day, doing kids' stuff and getting in trouble for not doing things correctly, not, not obeying in time, uh, things like that. 
And was that pretty consistent throughout your childhood or did it, yeah. did it, ebb, and flow? it didn't ebb and flow at all? It was consistent. Wow. It probably didn't end until I was in about eighth grade. I remember uh-huh. the last incident with my, the, what I remember as being one of the last incidences with my mom. Uh-huh. And, and, what, and then what happened after that? Well, I think I was kind of too big. Oh, I see. It's not that I wouldn't get in bad trouble. In fact, I remember getting one time I, my dad would, my parents would be enraged at me. They wouldn't be physical necessarily. My mom threw stuff, you know, probably through my teens, but Mm -hmm. we would kind of, you know, we had this thing, oh, mom has an Irish temper. Mom can't hit someone when she throws something at them anyway. Ha ha ha. Uh, She has such bad aim. uh And I forget where you are in the birth order. I'm a middle child. Middle child. So did your parents target one of you more than the others or was it pretty equally? Uh, Well, what's so interesting is my, my sister, my brother came back from Iraq. He was uh, over there and he talked about an incident where my mom threw hot coffee on him. Mm. And my sister said, that's horrible and refused to talk to my parents and doesn't remember being physically abused however my brother remembers her being dragged by the hair in the living room a lot of trauma induced memory erasure going on huh i think so i think so so yeah did you experience that as well did you kind of bury those memories and then start remembering things later or have they all always been there with you you know it was interesting i went to australia when i was 18 19 and that family was so normal and so calm and so loving. <laughs> it was really a trip for me. And then you realize that you're, you had not experienced a normal family, huh? Exactly. I was, I, I, and I didn't, what I did was sort of suppress a lot of stuff. And I came back home and I, everything was sort of fine until I came out. Uh-huh. And, then, and then a lot of stuff came back because they were so... You know, they, they, I couldn't live with them anymore, and they were so angry. And, and then it escalated. So just backing up a little bit to your, yeah. your experience with the church, you were four. Was it, Did you say you were four when that happened, or were you I was in that? a preschool. Preschool. Mm-hmm. And, and my sister was a couple years older than me, than me in the preschool with me, and she remembers not, she wasn't there when it happened, but she remembers the change in me after it happened. Uh, and it was a, was a preschool teacher or was it a priest? I it forgot. It was a priest and the nuns. Priest and the nuns. Yeah. So were they to get, did they do it together or was it one at a time? Yes. yes really was, together? Oh my God. Yeah, it was like a ritualistic kind of thing. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so it happened several times then. I think so. I mean, uh-huh. my whole experience of terror about it is so acute uh-huh. that there's very few times when I've had what could be considered memories. Uh, I see. Which come back, come in a state uh-huh. of uh, triggering. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so did you tell your parents about it, try, or probably didn't feel very safe to do that? Well, the way my sister remembers it is Nobody in the adult world seemed to notice that there was a problem. Uh-huh. Whereas she would look at me and feel like I was, her recollection is almost like I was literally falling apart. Uh-huh. You know, and, um, and my parents, you know, I mean, I don't know how old your parents were, but my parents were very young. Uh-huh. And we 
at the time in the Catholic Church, there was no perception that such a thing could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that happened. I think it was it in the 90s that a lot of stuff mm-hmm. was coming out. And yeah, so this was probably in the 60s. This was right. This was, I was born in 64. So. Right, right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Do you know whatever happened to these, to your attackers? Have you ever? I do not. No. And I have to look them up. I, you know, by the time I was in a space where I could think of such a thing, I think they were probably long dead mm. by that point. Because they were older. Yeah, they were older. Mm-hmm. And, you know, was it Merrill Hurst? Remember we went to go visit Mary Olson? Because I remember you didn't tell us that until we arrived, that it was the spot that it had happened. Well, and I got very triggered by being there. And I don't think I told you guys so you didn't, you were, you were pretty for calm. a while afterwards yeah. that well, you, I had gotten really triggered from being oh, no, there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and uh, yeah, it's the kind of thing that's so difficult to talk, talk about when you're in the middle of that that PTSD. So it makes me want justice for you. Mm-hmm, <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. why I, that's why I wonder if... As I got to a place where I felt that justifiable anger, I, I too want justice for everyone that went through that stuff. Unfortunately, as you know, it is so many people. I know. I know. And I'm always so excited to hear about reparations being, you know, granted and arrests right happy that's you know it's, it's interesting because um as a as another survivor i i love that show law and order svu mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's all about and, and some, i was trying to explain this to someone because some some movies like remember when i think it was the the accused came out it was about a mm-hmm. game i could not see it i mean there are certain mm-hmm. things that i cannot see but there are other things that i can see if i feel like there's justice sometimes watch these crime dramas that have the murder is really gruesome or something like that or the serial killer is really awful mm-hmm. and um sometimes you know someone will say to me how can you watch that all you've been through i said because they get hot in the yes. end that makes yes. me so exactly. happy exactly i know well i think the, the the thing that makes me so sad for young stephanie mm. you had no safe adults in your mm-hmm. life you mm-hmm. had no i mean did you have anyone safe in your life that you could talk to about things like this or no were they, no that's just no it's not at all no. astonishing that you turned out the way you did and you had no safe adults it's just breaks my heart You know, I think I'm kind of amazed that my brother and sister and I all have definitely a lot of trauma experience and effect, Mm -hmm. but I admire my brother and sister so much. They are such cool people. Uh, That's good. You have each other now. Now, your sister, was she younger? She's two years older than I am. Two years older. Okay, so your brother's Mm -hmm. younger. Yes, he's five years younger. Okay, so she was poised to notice the difference in you when you started, your personality started changing. I think so. I think so, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, and have you talked to your parents about this abuse many years later at all? I did. I did. Because I kind of would sometimes sort of uh, disappear Mm-hmm. for a while because of just the memories and my anger at them and stuff like that and I just didn't wouldn't want to talk to them and then uh, later I would say I'm sorry I was just really triggered by things in my childhood and eventually I told my mom that I had been abused in the church mm-hmm. and how so, did she react she didn't say much she didn't mm-hmm. have much to say I think she I think she found it really upsetting mm-hmm but didn't know what to say about it. Yeah, she she seems to have a hard time processing her feelings, doesn't she? 
Yeah. 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 She's, she struggles with that uh-huh. quite a bit. Have you like talked to your parents about the physical abuse as well? How have well, when my sister that? had that, you know, I'm not talking to you until you apologize. Uh-huh. We did talk some about it. And my, my mom says, well, I just think it's important that we all just remember the good times. Oh, gosh. That's the way she... So she has not apologized ever. I don't feel like I've gotten a real apology uh-huh. from her. No. Not in the way that, you know, one of the things my son said to me one time that really touched me was he said, Mom, you do a good job apologizing. Yeah. And so when I think of what I think of what an apology means, I'm pretty thorough and pretty like, this is on me, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very sorry it's, it's impact on you. I try to really be, own my stuff. My mom has no ability to do Yeah. That. Well, what's really amazing about you, it shows that how huge your heart is, is that you have been able to have a relationship with your parents even after they treated you so horribly, even though they had never apologized, because it's difficult for people to do that if people don't don't actually receive genuine apologies. It has been difficult. And I don't always, sometimes, like I say, I just need my father's past and, you know, he had horrible Alzheimer's the mm-hmm. situation before he passed. And I'm just glad he's in a better place. Mm-hmm. And my, my mom is my continual. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. But again, that's what I mean, that you have a big heart because you've been able to, you're still, you still have contact with her. It's amazing, really, that you've been able to have that relationship with her, even though she's never really apologized for what she did to you. Yeah. I feel like I pay a bit of a price with my brother and sister that I still have contact with my mom. It's like they don't really trust me. My sister basically isn't talking to me right now. She's not hostile. uh I'm sorry to hear that. I'll call and ask how she's doing. She doesn't call back. And it's hard... I try to really, though, respect where my brother and sister are at. Mm-hmm. You know. it's, it's really hard when you have great hurt and there, there are loyalty issues involved mm-hmm, in that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard not to get those loyalty issues in the way when somebody's really hurt you. I yeah. can really understand where they're coming from as well as where you're coming from. So, so hard. I do, too. You know, my mom and my sister had... A really, really challenging relationship from the time she was two years old, yeah. kind of thing, you know. Right. And um, again, I just I admire my sister so much. Uh, she's such a. I, uh, I know I've bragged about her to you before about you know what she's accomplished in her life. Uh-huh. Wow, how I smart hope, she is. I hope you're able to have contact with her again because I know how much you love her. I think it'll happen. Yeah. I think I just need to be patient. Uh huh. Right. So let's jump ahead to your, yeah. I know a lot happened to you when you were in college. So let's go to mm-hmm. the next chapter of your life. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's do it. I go off to college and I fall in love with a woman. What was her name? Her name was Jill. And we were on the soccer team together where these things often, often happen. Mm-hmm. Those, those, those sports, you know, <laughs> Our, our tricky area there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a real big, sh- big shock to me. And I told my parents and they were awful about it. They, they were just, you know, my dad said awful things and they didn't believe it. Of course, they thought it was a phase. Uh huh. Right. So that was how they handled it initially. And part of my response to 
coming out, the sort of the difficult process was um, I started using drugs and alcohol a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think I have a bunch of learning disabilities that haven't been diagnosed because oh, I was really? not ready for college. I'm wondering whether it had was connected to the abuse you'd suffered too. See, I really feel like it is. Uh-huh. I feel like it is. And yeah. that my concentration stuff and my anxiety and mm-hmm. I had a really hard time focusing in class. It would have been nice to get more help with that. I think kids today, there's more of a chance that they will be identified. I don't know if in my circumstance with my parents being the way they were, that they knew really. My mom tried to help me get tutoring and stuff like that. I was slow to learn to read and mm-hmm. things like that. And my parents actually, when I was a kid, did get me a therapist because mm-hmm. I was such a wreck. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, again, I don't, I don't remember any of that. It was when I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. So yeah. off to college, mm-hmm. fell in love with a woman, started doing a lot of drugs and alcohol. I wasn't ready for the lack of structure Mm. Uh, in the dorms and stuff like that. That's, a, that's so hard for crazy. so many people, isn't it? You know, it is. Now that I have college-age kids, mm-hmm. you know, the stories. You know, my kids, my daughter and I had a long talk about this the other day with my cancer, you know. They had to really step up. They did, totally. And so they don't quite understand sometimes the way that they're contemporaries. <laughs> I know. Well, and I think that, you know, also if you have, I mean, our children are all really have stayed out of trouble in high school, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, like, Chris didn't drink alcohol at all until, as far as I know. I mean, who knows? But <laughs> mm-hmm. as far as I know, he didn't really drink alcohol until I went to college. Uh-huh. So then you have all this freedom and you have all this alcohol everywhere. Right, right. And, no, I, I have heard that, that kids are more likely to be successful the longer they wait to start drinking. But I think that's true. I uh-huh. think that their brains are more ready I don't know if ready is the word if they've had a period of time in that really formative high growth area of high school without doing substances right I think it's going to go a little bit better as they grow older yeah so you started doing drugs and alcohol what happened next well yeah I did very poor I did very well my first term but by the second term I Uh. did poorly for the next two terms Mm -hmm. And then I went home for the summer and my parents were really angry with me and how I was being. And they told me that I couldn't live there anymore. So I moved up to Seattle. And so then I just continued working because mm-hmm. I couldn't go back to school. So what were you doing? Were you What kind of job did you get? Oh, restaurant work. Restaurant work. Uh-huh. Bus and, tables and then I uh-huh. waited tables. Uh-huh. And at that point, were you in a relationship? I had a year-long relationship, and that was pretty fraught. She didn't really want to admit that we were together to other Mm -hmm. people, Mm -hmm. and I put up with that because I was all of, you know, 20. Mm -hmm. I also started having episodes of intense PTSD that I, I, anger and fear that I didn't, I couldn't control, Mm. and I, 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 was in a place where I was starting to realize that was happening mm-hmm. and it caused a lot of problems in my relationship. And eventually there was some physical abuse. She was, was hitting me. Oh, really? And, oh my yeah. gosh. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And then this is the good part. It freaked her out so bad that she was doing that. And, and 
that she insisted we go to couples therapy. Interesting. And then she decided I was the problem and that I should continue to do individual therapy. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I think that kind of saved my life. Therapy was so powerful for me. Uh, And you realized that you were repeating your family patterns, maybe? A bit. a bit. Yeah. And it was the first time anyone basically started saying to me, you, you've got PTSD, you know, mm-hmm. I was diagnosed that back then as having PTSD. Mm-hmm. And what was so wonderful was the bond that I formed with this safe person. Oh, good. Your it therapist. Was so powerful. Yes. Oh, man. And I think I saw her for like four years and she was just, her name was Pat and she was just a wonderfully generous spirit. Oh, good. Wow. So that was really your first relationship with someone that you could really trust. And Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh. She, I mean, it was, as you can imagine, sitting in a room with a power dynamic, you know, with one person being sort of up in the power dynamic and myself was high-risk behavior for me, mm-hmm. but I craved being seen and being in with safe contact with someone. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I, I feel like it saved my life. I was very suicidal, and I part of the sort of breakup was I ended up being uh, going to the hospital, going to mm-hmm. the psychiatric ward. That was another life-saving experience. That was incredible. How old were you then? 20. And you were still drinking and doing drugs at that point? Yes. Yeah. But that was right right after being, going to the hospital is when I stopped. Oh, I see. Was yeah, it, it was like a, a... Oh, you got into recovery. Okay. Yeah. Uh, another reason it saved your life then. That, that was when the breakup was happening and my abandonment issues are like massive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they're just so enormous. Mm-hmm. And so... I was freaking out, even though this relationship needed to end. I was really, really uh, suicidal about it. And I went into the hospital and I just had these sane people saying to me, I just, I just think this is a breakup and you're going to get through this. And, mm-hmm. you know, you got to quit using drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had some safety and mm-hmm. uh, really connected. One thing that happened too is I really connected with my fellow patients. That was oh, very God. powerful. That was very powerful. Yeah, you've had some really good experiences in psychiatric care, haven't you? That's, that's oh, really- I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have. It's It's really... Well, we'll talk more about my yeah. other psychiatric care later. Yeah, probably, yeah. But. You don't. I mean, you don't often hear those stories. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. So okay. So then, after you left the hospital, then what happened? Oh, so, I moved into an apartment by myself for the first time. Oh, right. And this is in Seattle. Right. And then, where did you meet Rebecca? Oh, I met Rebecca at Evergreen, but we got back together after I had been not drinking and using oh, for okay. a year. So you met her just like you were not dating at first. Right. Okay. Right. So then how did you get back together then when you were in Seattle and she was in Evergreen? Well, then she graduated from Evergreen and she would she came up for a wedding in Seattle and we just, she was still in a relationship, but we totally connected. She was at the end of a relationship. We got together that way. We just fell in love. Boom. It was and very powerful. And how long were you together? I was trying to remember. Well, you're together 29 to 30 years, right in the middle of that. 30 years. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh. So long. Looking back on your, on your marriage, what were the high points? Oh gosh. 
There was a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll relate to this. One of the things she introduced me to was going to plays at Ashland. Yeah. And since I'd never had a liberal arts education, she kind of introduced me. I started sort of self-teaching myself liberal arts and reading the <laughs> classics yeah. and getting into Shakespeare. I mean, she was wonderful at introducing me to education. And she had such a belief in my intelligence uh-huh. you know, since I bombed out of college. It was really lovely to have someone that was like, you're really smart and really capable. Oh, good. And all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we just had a lot of humor. And of course, having children was a hugely wonderful experience. Before we got together, she said, I want a house. I want kids. If you don't want those things, let's not go forward. Uh-huh. And I was in a place where I'd never considered myself, you know, I was having such a hard time parenting myself for many years. Right. But I was like, am I going to meet me as a parent? But I got to say, I was just so in love. I was like, I'm going to figure this out. Then by the time we decided to have kids, we'd, we'd wanted to start a family, but Rebecca had the chronic fatigue real bad. So we didn't know she'd be able to get pregnant. And we got advice from the doctors that she shouldn't get pregnant. Oh, I didn't know that. Because of oh. the, how tired she was. And we came oh. home from one of those appointments. It was our second time that we heard from a, one of her doctors, don't have kids. And she was in despair, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And she, I said to her, People have kids when they have diabetes and other health problems. This is your dream. This is, completes your life. You need to work on getting pregnant now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she wow. did. When I look back at when we first met you, you were the breadwinner. Uh-huh. You were the physically strong person. Uh-huh. And we actually kind of got to know Rebecca a little bit more than you because she was the, she was the one who was there at the preschool. And then the role switched, really, didn't they? Yes, I started to have terrible health problems. I had endometriosis that was like stage four. It was terrible. And I had to have multiple surgeries because of that. And yeah, my health just took a, took a dive. And how old were you when that, when that started happening? I think I was around 40. 40, okay. And yeah. I remember you talking at one point about how you think that the endometriosis was connected to your trauma. Well, they say that's a possibility. Whether that was, you know, like a, my mom had terrible periods and stuff like that, whether it was connected to genetics or trauma or whatever, it was very traumatic to have all of those surgeries, mm-hmm. have all of that attention in that area. Yeah. Uh, was extremely difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And you had extreme pain from this. I did. I mean, the car would go over the bump and I would groan. I mean, it was constant and, and, and intense. It was pain throughout your body or was it mostly in your reproductive area? Mostly in my reproductive area. Uh-huh. My endometriosis was so bad it glued my, my organs, my lower organs together. Uh-huh. And, you know, they went in once and it was pretty successful, but then it came back. And they oh, had to my go in gosh. Again. You had a hysterectomy, is that right? I have no... You have nothing left? girl parts. So you don't have, have nothing any left down there at all, right? I don't, actually. That's good. I don't. And um, it's such a wonderful thing after it being so bad for so many years. Oh, and, and I developed a bladder condition. Oh, yes, that's right. That is extremely painful. Is that still painful? 
No, no, that's healed. Oh, and and that was that connected to the endometriosis? We don't know exactly why it happened, but mm. basically the lining of your bladder is gone oh. inside, and so the the urine causes pain. Oh my gosh, that sounds horrible. So yeah, and and so was that when you started going to the pain clinic and trying to get other? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which I always feel like means. We don't know why you're in so much pain. Uh huh. Right. But I don't know. And diagnosed with IBS, which I feel like we don't know why you have, mm-hmm. you know, gut problems. Yeah, you had all that crap you were dealing with, and then breast cancer hit, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And how old were you when you were diagnosed with breast cancer? Tell us, about, tell us about what happened then. Well, um, I was very tired all the time, and Rebecca said you need to go in and and get th- things checked out. And then as part of that, I had a mammogram. And right away that day of the mammogram, they took a biopsy. And I remember saying to the doctor, you know, it was going to be a couple of days. I said, should I be worried? And he uh-huh. said, I'm worried for you. Oh yes. my gosh, that's very reassuring. So that's, that's how, like, apparently it oh, just was crap. like, a war, 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 breast cancer. Sure enough, I had breast cancer and that started my treatment. And I have to say that speaking of resilience, that I had had so much medical intervention in my life. And when I first started going through that process, because I really hadn't gone to the hospital much except for mental health stuff before Mm -hmm. this, I was a very passive patient. People would tell me stuff and I would say, oh, okay. And I might even think, boy, that's not the whole story. Or I don't feel like you're really listening to me, but I would be like, okay, thanks. Go off. And that would be the end of it. But I decided at some point, I am going to be a bright spot in the nurse's day because this is going to be the only mm-hmm. person I see outside of my family for the week, probably. Mm-hmm. And so I am going to be positive. So I learned how to be a patient. Mm-hmm. I learned how to be a collaborator with my healthcare people before cancer. And that helped so much when I was going through treatment. Yeah. Well, I remember going to radiation with you one day and mm. went to go see your doctor and you invited me in there. You had that kind of partnership relationship with your care providers. I witnessed that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so going back to when, you're, when your doctor said, I'm worried for you, what would you like him to have said instead of that? Like, yeah, does that seem God. harsh? No, I actually appreciated it. Really? Because it allowed me, when I got the phone call for my primary care physician to be like, uh, okay, this is, this is my path. That uh-huh. I'm gonna be on. What was a little bit harder was the appointment when the surgical oncologist sat Rebecca and I down in this room and a friend of Rebecca's was there and she was taking notes and found out the pathology of the cancer and how it was aggressive mm-hmm. cancer. Path- the pathology of the cancer was very aggressive. Mm-hmm. That was a harder day because I was sort of like, oh, people have breast cancer and, you know, it sounds like I'll have a mastectomy and that'll kind of suck. So then to find out it was in my lymph nodes and it was aggressive was, mm-hmm. that was a tough day. But yeah. what else was she going to tell me at that point? So how did Rebecca deal with the cancer initially and how did that affect your relationship? She was very, very upset about the cancer naturally. Mm-hmm. But I think that she had spent so much time being a caretaker for me or me being ill 
at that point that she really called in a lot of help and that was mm-hmm. really good. Mm-hmm. But I, I wonder if that didn't, I know with the divorce at one point, she, I was still going through, I had to have a MRI for my brain and stuff like that. She mm-hmm. said, this will never end. I think she perceived me as being kind of permanently broken. Uh-huh. Understandably, in a lot of ways, when you look at that history, I, I get it. So you had gone through all of your treatment, if I recall, mm-hmm. and you were actually in, you were cancer free. Yeah. And then you thought it had come back. Well, I had a couple of scares. I had a, I had stomach aches and my, I went to my radiologist and she said, we're going to do a brain scan on you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. Didn't seem related, but she said with your type of cancer, it can come back in the brain and come mm-hmm. across as stomach problems. Oh, come across as stomach problems? Really? Right. How weird. I hope I'm remembering this correctly. I uh-huh. hope there's not an oncologist that's going, this, what the It doesn't hell matter. You know what? This is a about? podcast. Who cares? Say <laughs> 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 whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to get back to right doctor. at the moment. No, you're not a doctor. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I had a bad, bad blood work. Uh, uh, lots of, uh, in, there, there was anemia in my blood work uh, and it was pretty high. Mm-hmm. And so they did a bone scan. And another PET scan, which is when they scan the whole body to see if they can find any cancer. Mm-hmm. That way. Not a bone scan. I had a bone biopsy. Mm-hmm. That was right when the divorce happened. I, I did not. Rebecca told me she was leaving me when I still hadn't gotten back word on my Right. Cancer. That's what I remember. When you called us up and I, we yeah. thought you were going to give us bad news about your cancer. And, and I said, I don't have cancer, but I'm getting a divorce. I know. Oh, my gosh. It was really intense time. And it was, it was a really, and that came as a real shock for you initially, was, didn't it? Well, we'd certainly been having problems. Mm-hmm. I could tell something was off, and I said to her many times, what's going on? Are you in love with someone else? I thought she was in love with her best friend. Mm-hmm. But she was in love with her best friend's brother. <laughs> oh, my God. You can't so. take this stuff out. Oh, my God. <laughs> right, right. Yes. When, when we first got together, you know, she was bisexual. Bisexual, and, right. And, uh-huh. I, and one of the things she really liked about me is that I totally accepted that. Uh-huh, right. I think people, it makes total sense to me that people are attracted to both right, men and women. Right, So I wasn't shocked by that, but I was uh-huh. pretty devastated because when I lost my marriage... I lost her as the person that I'd always described as the love of my life. Yeah. So that was so painful. But I also lost the family that I'd created. My creation of a family with Rebecca and my intensity in a sense about that creation, of course, had everything to do with being rejected by my parents. Right. You know, I didn't talk to my parents for 10 years. Yeah. And you had these incredible kids had these incredible kids mm-hmm. that were my life. Yeah. And um, I had such close relationships with them. Like when she told me, she said, I don't want you to tell the kids yet. Well, we're going to tell the kids later. And I said, so I'm supposed to go around with these people yeah. that I'm got tell, you know, have such honest relationships with, and I'm supposed to wait to tell them for when you're ready that we're getting, in, that you're leaving me. And how long, did she, how long did she want you to wait? I don't remember, but she just leapt up and went down and told him. Oh. Yeah. It was a mess. Yeah. A pretty bad mess. How do you feel like uh, your kids have dealt with it overall? Amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Were the kids surprised? Sam said, I think this makes sense. I think they knew something was off. Ah. 
but I think in general they were surprised. Uh-huh. I, as you know, was in the hospital days later, mm-hmm. in the psychiatric hospital days right. later. Right. Because I was so devastated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, looking back at your relationship, um, just during the time that you had cancer, after we'd mm-hmm. known you at that point, we'd known you for many years. I thought it was interesting when we would come to visit you that there was like this cancer central in your house, but mm-hmm. Rebecca was not that involved. Yeah. There were all yeah. these other people that were taking care of you. Yes. Not, and Rebecca would kind of flit in and out, but uh-huh. and then there was also her mother <laughs> at the same time, right? Yes. And she was taking care of her mother and maybe she just got, it's like she just got tired of taking care of people or something. I don't know. You know? like Right. I think that when I'm feeling generous of spirit, (laughs) (laughs) which which isn't all the time, you are often generous of spirit, Stephanie. I I try to, well, thank you. And I try to look at it from her perspective Mm -hmm. and and try to, but in general, I think the divorce was really a shame. Yeah. Uh, What it did, what it has done for me, and this has taken many years is in a way it's released me from the oppression of having to, there's some way in which I kind of, I was so intent on creating this new family that the realities of certain ways that, that human beings need to be just escaped me. Mm. Does that make any sense? I had high expectations on the way that people were going to be for me. Mm-hmm. And I would get very concerned and I I was very insecure Mm -hmm. about whether I was going to have what I needed. Mm -hmm. And what I needed was absolutism from people. Mm -hmm. Right, right. (laughs) This experience of getting this divorce, I mean, at first it was just, I was so freaked out. Mm -hmm. I was just, I went into the hospital twice. Mm -hmm. I relapsed. You relapsed, yeah. Do you remember those times when you were suicidal? Do you, do you have very clear memories of those times? Well, not as clear, I'm happy mm. to say. Um, I remember when we were in bed. I don't know if you remember yes, this or not. When we I were do. in bed, we were so far away, and you called us up, and we were so worried about you because you were mm. suicidal. And it's like, oh my God, we're so far away. And then you were admitted to the hospital like the next day or something. Thank God. Yeah. 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 I think that was right after the, I don't remember whether that was the first time or the second time, but yeah, we were very worried about you. Well, you guys have all been such a blessing in my life. And to be able to call you and tell you where I was really at is part of how I was able to take the steps to really make myself oh. safe. Oh, that, that means a lot to me. Well, it's well, very I, true. I am just, you know, I've told you uh, several times that you're like one of the strongest people I know. You've endured so oh. much pain in your life, but you're still so joyful and upbeat. Let's go back to your physical pain because the other mm. thing I loved you the story about how you go to this pain clinic, and I don't know whether it was a year or two after your divorce. I'm not sure when they they said to you at one point that you're their success story. Yeah, I was. A, I was a an A student. Yeah. And that, their success story. That's yeah. right. Yeah, You had to go in and out of the hospital and you had mm-hmm. suicide. You had a relapse. You had some destructive relationships. You were, I did. For the first time in your life, well, well, for the yeah. first time in many years, you were, you were dating and you had some difficult relationships. Well, the, the last time I dated anyone was at 23. Yes. So you can imagine what yeah. naive and impressionable person I was 
Yeah. And yes, I had some disastrous girlfriends. Yeah. And you were kind of going a little bit, you kind of were sort of reliving your young adulthood that, you know, your college years in a way. I think, oh, totally, know? totally. I went, I would go dancing a lot. Mm-hmm. I would, I, my, you know, Diane and yeah. I were both going through a divorce and we'd go out mm-hmm. dancing all the time. It was actually really, that part was really fun. Yeah, that, that is good. I'm glad that you had Diane during that period. The increased exposure to drugs and alcohol was not good. And then I right. started just the, I was in so much pain. I started using. Yeah, so understandable with what you've dealt with in your life. And what are the strategies that you found for dealing with physical pain? Well, what was interesting is I'd been doing regular PT when I first went to the pain clinic. And And instead of doing PT, we'd sit there and strategize about how to do things instead. Instead of, you know, doing leg lifts or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, when you do the dishes, you're reaching down into the sink and that's really bothering your back. Let's think about where to put, maybe put your foot up to open up the cupboard and put your foot up. And that'll ah. reduce some of the strain. Do you know John Kabat-Zinn? He's a... No, he's I don't. A, oh, oh, I have heard his name. Yeah, I just, I guess I haven't heard it pronounced. Yes. He's um, a, isn't he a Buddhist? Right. And uh-huh. he is an MD, I think, also. Uh-huh. And he wrote Full Catastrophe Living and uh-huh. that kind of thing. Well, he has these pain meditation podcasts. And I would ah. listen to those endlessly ah. every day I would lay down and, and listen to that sort of thing so prayer and meditation became really huge for me and just a lot of stuff about it's about really living life in your relationships and your connections with people love is such a healing force how I treated people became really important all my interactions became really important going to the grocery store and saying Mm -hmm. nice things to the cashier and one thing that's hard about pain is the the exhaustion that comes with it Mm -hmm. and being kind to myself about that I needed to change my expectations of myself and mm-hmm. self-acceptance, mm-hmm. accepting myself with my capacities that I had at that time. Right. You are a true success story. How has your PTSD manifested and how have you dealt with that? Well, my PTSD is I get triggered and I everything becomes altered. My vision, my sense of my physical space. Oh my gosh. My sense of acute despair is a symptom of my PTSD. Mm -hmm. Katie and I, we went on a camping trip recently. I was triggered before the camping trip and in my PTSD mode and I couldn't help organize. I felt bad, you know? Uh I could lift and carry, but I couldn't sequence. How long does that last usually? That lasted for about, that was about three days. Three days. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Felt like a really long three days. And does that happen when, you're, when you have to go to work? I mean, how do you go to work? Work is kind of a reprieve a bit, but oh. it can be tough. But, you know, the work kind of work I do, the immediate tasks, I, I can kind of get in the mode. I see. But if you have to make decisions on your own that are not really mm-hmm. work, it's hard. I took a medical leave because of PTSD a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So you have certain strategies for dealing with physical pain and PTSD, but they're, yes. they, they, don't always, they don't always eliminate all of that. There's just too much going on in this world, not to yeah. bump into sore spots. You right. Know? And you mentioned a while ago that you've had some PTSD again recently during COVID. 
Yes. Well, a change in my routine and the way I connect with others, you know, I've got good friends like yourself and my buddy, Michael, and people like that, that I would see regularly. Contact and connection with other people is super important to me. When I'm in my PTSD mode, I forget that my friends love me so much. Oh, really? So I feel very alone. And Mm -hmm. that being alone is really connected with fear to me. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm alone, I'm at, I could be hurt. Yeah. Sounds like we need to make you like a PTSD pack, like a, <laughs> like a pack of cards or something. Yeah. It reminds yeah. You. I mean, right now, because yeah, we would see each other regularly. And, and mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about that, that you joined our church. Yes. Um, which has been wonderful. And um, yeah. And that, was that because I know that before you started coming to Spirit of Grace, you were going to to a Unitarian church, right? It's um, called uh, Center for Spiritual Living. Oh, it's, okay, right. Yeah, is it and like, like new like, thought? It's sort of? new thought. Okay. It's new thought. Okay. That's correct. Was it hard for you to come back to a Catholic? We're Catholic Lutheran. We're not, you know, fully Catholic. But was that hard to come back to the Catholic Church? I think that being in Center for Spiritual Living really kind of healed that for me. Mm. The Center for Spiritual Living was wonderful, but when I went to the hospital and nobody was available to come and pray with me, I thought I need to be in a different kind oh of congregation. That's exactly what happened to us when Chris was born. Really? Because I was going to LEC at the time. Oh. And, you know, LEC was enormous. And uh. my mom and a friend called LEC to tell them that Chris had been born. And nobody ever called back. There were two wow. phone calls made. Nobody ever called back. Whereas back then, Mission of the Atonement, before Spirit of Grace, they were there 100%. You know, and that was partly what got me back to Spirit of Grace. So, and then Lori arrived as well. So, My, both that's of those. incredible. That's yeah. That we had a similar experience. I know. I didn't realize that that was part of it for you. That's really. I didn't realize that either. I know. I know. For you. Yeah. I had other doubts about, there was a little bit of the prosperity gospel thing going on. Ah, uh, yeah. But senior minister was a really great preacher and a writer. But then, of course, that all fell apart because, you know, there was, there was uh, the scandal. corruption. Yeah, and things like yes. that. But anyway, anyway, I did feel like it was way too big for me. Mm-hmm. Um, there was not a sense of community that's mm-hmm. really important to both of us, you know. Yes. So. Being raised in a Catholic environment, going to church every Sunday until I was around 16, there was just so much. I, I love New Thought in a lot of ways. I wanted more community, but I also, I needed to get back into the gospel mm-hmm. and see what I really thought of all that. Mm-hmm. And Spirit of Grace has been a wonderful opportunity to hear the stories again, and I love communion. Love mm-hmm. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, interesting. it's really important to me. Um, I think it's an ancient practice, uh-huh. and so I respond to it from that that wow. inner level of this ancient way of humans connecting. I think it uh-huh. happened long before Catholicism. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that you felt that way about communion. For me, I experience God through the love of other people, mm. and that's what church mm. really means the most to me. And also having people who really can translate, because I have a lot of problems with the Bible, mm-hmm. um, and people who can translate these stories and help me understand what's behind them. <laughs> I, I yes. That. Because, you know, it's, it, it was so ancient and was written in a time uh, where women were really 10th class citizens. Right. So I feel like the Bible has been used as a weapon so much that yes. um, I struggle with it. So yes. I appreciate having teachers who can help me see the positives in the Bible, I guess. 
Well, you know, I'm not, I'm around that my, my church community and you guys and my friend Michael goes to church and is very oriented around church. But my girlfriend and, and her daughter and my kids and a bunch of people in my life aren't very religiously oriented. And the way I think of that is, A, people can know a lot about the history of religion, but not so much about what I consider the essence of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And then I have a history with of interaction with religion in the Bible, and I can't deny that part of myself. Mm-hmm. That's something I came to the conclusion that yeah, it's a it's an important part of who I am. Well, and I think it's also c- connecting to the the radical Jesus because the Bible mm-hmm. has been used as a weapon against women and lesbians. And yeah, gays and so true. You know, there's so much that we we have to complain about the Bible, but, <laughs> but I really believe that Jesus was a radical feminist, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so that's, that's how I can relate going back to what Jesus was like. Yes. And I find the teachings of Jesus in many ways challenges me at a level that I can't live up to. Right. And I, no. and I kind of like that about mm-hmm. Christianity that if I can take some of the guilt out of it and just appreciate the striving towards the the teachings that I like of Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, um, it it becomes a powerful force. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if I got sick or went to the hospital, being a member of Spirit of Grace, I would just be surrounded by you love. You would be surrounded totally. Yeah. And with my issues, I, I have learned if I am really in a bad place, I need to go to the hospital. Yes. Yeah. I need to go. I mean, I might need a medication adjustment. I, I need to be safe. I need to yes. be in a place that's safe in order to bounce back. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, when I go to the hospital, I participate in all the crafts and activities <laughs> and classes. I'm like, another, you know, it's another a patient kind of situation. Yes, and yes. I bond with in. the people in the hospital. Yeah. And well, you just, I mean, that's your personality. You throw yourself mm. in 100% to whatever you mm-hmm. do. You mm-hmm. throw yourself 100% into parenting and that, yeah. I mean, how, how, you are such an amazing mom. How, how oh, have you, how have you been such a great mom when you had really bad parenting models? I mean, was that a deliberate thing for you or how? Oh, you definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I'm so glad I live in an era of you don't touch your kids. You don't harm your kids physically. I mean, as parents, that's a rule that our contemporaries share. Mm -hmm. There's no thinking. No, no, no. Right. That is absolutely wrong. And I know how badly it affected me. And I feel like I got to say, Rebecca was a great parenting partner. I Mm -hmm. learned a lot from her. She was a great support for doing the right thing. She had really good techniques with the kids to talk to them and help them understand what needed to happen. I feel like we had good expectations in helping the kids mature and become competent adults. Mm -hmm. Rebecca was a huge part of being a good parent for me, read parenting yeah. books, mm-hmm. talked to my friends, yeah, around good parents. It's a triumph for you, I think, that you were mm. that you raised such incredible kids after you know oh, your you. lack of models. You know, so it's it's true that 
one of the things I feel like we did for the kids is we didn't drink and use drugs Mm -hmm. while the kids were growing up. And so we had a consistent message. Uh I mean, I just think me as an as an actively using alcoholic parent is just such a nightmare idea. Mm -hmm. Did your kids know about the relapse when you had your relapse? I didn't tell them at first, Uh but I told them later. My son was pretty upset with me. I think Uh my daughters were more understanding. Uh They were they were more sort of privy to my day-to-day suffering and mm-hmm. I think they weren't terribly surprised. Well, given what you were going through, I mean, it, it was not surprising to me either, really. Mm-hmm. You've been dealt with a ton of shit in your life. Oh my God, <laughs> you really have, you know, and then the divorce was just like the hardest. So yeah, after what it, you... it was really intense. The yeah. divorce was a yeah. huge blow. Do you remember how you taught your kids about homophobia and how did they, what kind of conversations did you have about, you know, the fact they had two moms? They were really sort of proud of the fact and were so loving, such loving creatures that, and and I think things felt really natural to them Mm -hmm. at home. And so when they would receive static from people, well, Sam would get a little physical (laughs) threw a kid down a, down a, hill one time oh did he really <laughs> for saying that his parents were faggots which always surprised me oh my because god <laughs> it's like you don't got your terms right but yeah exactly <laughs> and w- w- one time emily was told that her family wasn't strong her because she didn't have a dad wow i remember emily coming home and it was really god you would have just bawled too it was a heartbreaking scene where mm-hmm. emily was going Mom, you're so strong, and Mom, you're so strong, and Dodie's so strong, their grandmother, you know. Uh-huh. I have such a, I, my family is strong, I'm strong, you know, and just her, she was really hurt by that. Oh, yeah. So you didn't really have to teach them too much about homophobia. They were experiencing it themselves, and they were so proud of what you'd created, huh? Yeah, and well, we were in the wonderful Maplewood community. Right, and then, and also Moldova Play School, where we met, which had an anti-bias curriculum. So, yeah. Can you believe how lucky we were that we got to have a preschool with an anti-bias curriculum? And you were not the only family that had two moms either. That's right. Nice that they had that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It really was a great start for our kids, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Teacher Mm -hmm. Marty. Thank you, Teacher Marty. You're an an angel. You're an angel. I know. So looking back on your life, what are you most proud of? I'm always proud of myself when I can be kind to others. I mean, I'm I'm really proud that I quit drinking and using. It was really huge. I'm really proud that I was able to be on social social security disability and then work again. Mm-hmm. It's a really unusual situation. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just whenever I can have a real conversation with someone or stop and we can share a moment of having a good day with each other that I'm most proud of. I think that's the most sustaining thing we can do. Your warmth, your personal warmth and kindness is your superpower. Oh, thank you. Don't you think so? Yeah. Good superpower. And your resilience, because I really do believe you're you're one of the most resilient people I know, um, given everything that you've gone through. So if you could think back to yourself at age 18, what would you say? Mm. What would you say to her now? Yeah, what would I say to her now? Yeah. You're going to have all the love you need. You're going to have all the love you need that can build a real life. Because yeah. I think at that time, there was very few lesbian couples having kids. There were. There were some. Right. right. And there wasn't the world we live in today. Mm-hmm. It was a different world. The other thing that I've said to you before that 
I feel like you are a happier and healthier person now than you were when you were married. I agree. I agree <laughs> with that. It's interesting because I was so afraid of losing what mm-hmm. I had. Mm-hmm. And then what I've learned is it's okay to have lost what I've lost. And there's so much I didn't actually lose. Yes. Yeah. And then when I think of that, I think of my relationship with my kids. Yeah, exactly. Because you still have such a such a strong relationship with them. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, the one thing that you've lost, which, you know, is probably still hard is that you're not able to see them as much as you would if you were still, but, you know, now they're grown anyway, but, you know, you, you lost that uh, living under their roof all the time, I suppose. Oh, you? that was devastating. Yeah. Absolutely devastating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was used to being there all the time, you know, because mm-hmm. I'd been ill for so long. Right. Right. I was always home. I was always yeah. around. So what is something you wish people understood about you? Here's what I think about that. People are kind of amazed that I can hide some of my stress and mm-hmm. difficulties. And I wish people could understand that that's a coping mechanism that I can't live without. <laughs> right. I, I have to have that because I have to keep it together to have a job. I have mm-hmm. to keep it together. But but you can, you know, but it is going on and I'm so appreciative of like the way that I can tell you I'm really having a hard time and you can really hear me. But yeah, I need, I need that buffer. And sometimes maybe it seems like I'm not genuine because you find out later, oh gosh, she's been really stressed. But I would never, ever feel that you're not genuine. There's yeah. no way, Stephanie. No, and I, <laughs> and I understand that when sometimes when people are having a hard time, they don't, they have a hard time reaching out. They have a hard time talking about it. I totally get that. So yeah, I know you're like one of the most genuine people I know. I would never oh, think that you. about you. So can you think of a story of grit, resilience, and connection that's been an inspiration for you in your life? Oh my gosh. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is um, Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot of his biographies and speeches and, and writings and things like that. And I think about what it was like to be him in that time and his willingness to put it all on the line. I mean, he could have just been a preacher of the church, a a guy that had status in his community, right? Mm -hmm. And an educated man and kind of rested on his laurels. But he got in there and he fought. He fought for a better life for people. Mm -hmm. He went to jail. He went through so much, risked his life, risked and and even risked his family, which I'm sure was extremely stressful, Mm. made the world a better place, brought the teaching of nonviolence into my life through hearing about his story. I'm sure I would have eventually heard about it, but I really became acquainted with that from learning about Martin Luther King. You also are a huge history buff. Are you drawn to stories of resilience and history as well? Others? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love to uh, those genealogy stories, you know, ah. and, and I love the stories of av- average people mm-hmm. that, that get through things. I, I'm so impressed with the stories of immigrants. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you're yeah. bringing that out into the, into the world. It's just takes so much to it really from your, your plan. You, you know, people put up with incredible oppression Yep. And stay home because it's home. Yes. But the people that can take the risk to go someplace else and create a life. The mm. idea of live of moving, especially long ago when you know they when they left, I mean, even like people who left Europe to yeah. come to the US, they probably knew that they would never go back to Europe. It was so right. difficult in those days. And right. You know, right. 
And then you think, obviously, about people who are brought over on slave ships. And, you know, I mean, that's like, you know, it was not their choice, obviously. And, you know, I mean, just the, the heartbreak of never yes. seeing their home again and being so uh, cruelly taken from their yes. homes. Yes. Yeah, I know. I mean, when I think of resilience, I think, would I have been a person that could even have made the passage? That mm-hmm. was such a difficult passage. Right. And despair. Yeah. Oh I mean, we like what I, I imagine myself being taken away from, you know, you and my family and Michael and my I kids know. and wh- what would have become of me. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And to go into a really shitty experience. Yeah. Once yeah. you got here. Right. So my final question is, can you tell me about a time recently when you felt great joy? I feel like I have been feeling great joy recently and it's had to do with being outside in the mm-hmm. yard. Mm hmm. And walking and gorgeous, this weather in the in the mornings when it's cool brings me great joy. I was the other day I was sitting around and I was feeling like I want to tell somebody I love them, and I was thinking I'm going to call one of my kids because I'm feeling love, and I want to just tell somebody I love them and being with my daughter Claire. Nice, yeah. Oh well, thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been great chatting with you and. It's been great. I love you so much. Love you too. Love you too. Hope to see you soon. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. So now you know why I think Steph is one of the strongest and most resilient people I know. I hope she inspired you the way she inspires me every time I have a connection with her. Next week, I interview nature and forest therapy guide Katrina Nilsson Gorman, who runs the Nature in You Soul Medicine. Katrina also experienced trauma and health problems as a result of being raped while traveling in India. She had a very different experience than Steph when she entered a psychiatric hospital. She found the healing she needed in the forest. Like Steph, Katrina has also found a way to survive and thrive in spite of her trauma. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com.